If you uh, have your Bible this morning, you can begin opening to those same minor prophets. We are headed to the very short book of Obadiah as we continue now week two of our series through each of the 12 minor prophets in a varied order uh, in a series that I've titled God at the Mic uh, because the reality is that not only did God speak through the Old Testament prophets to God's people Israel in the Old Testament, those same words of God Those unchanging, powerful, authoritative words of God apply to us in our ever-changing, chaotic circumstances here once again today. Uh, Here in the book of Obadiah, it is actually the shortest uh, book in the Old Testament, only one chapter and only 21 verses to that one chapter. And so we will walk through all of Obadiah here this morning. Um, The message of the prophet Obadiah is one of judgment. Uh, not on Israel, but rather on a neighboring nation known as Edom. And God will be speaking the reality of consequences for Edom's injustices, specifically injustices committed against their neighbor Israel. And as we look at, at these stories from hundreds, even thousands of years ago, it ought to challenge us to ask questions like, in what way am I tempted or in what way do I see myself slipping into the sins of this morning Uh, the nation of Edom. And in the same way that that Israel and Edom and all of the people in the Old Testament had to find a solution to their sin problem, what is our solution to the grievances, the wickedness, the sin, the mistakes that we make in this life? To whom do we look? And the scripture, both Old Testament and New, is clear this morning where we put our eyes. Hear the word of God this morning. I'm going to begin by reading just the first four verses of the message of Obadiah to get us started. The word of God says this, verse one, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Thus far God's word. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, as well as your power, your truth, and your justice. Lord, we are in need of both, and we thank you for the perfection of who you are, that you have sent your Son to solve our sin problem this morning. And God, as we walk through the Old Testament, may it illuminate our New Testament lives this morning. Father, humble us this morning where we need humbling. Lord, lift us up by your grace, your hope, and your mercy where we need to be lifted up. Our eyes are on you, Lord, and on your word this morning. We pray all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Three ways here this morning as we walk through the short book of Obadiah, three ways that God still speaks to us today through the prophet Obadiah. The first is this, and we're going to see this in verses one through nine, the first section of this very brief message. God calls us into Christ-like humility and out of the pride of our hearts. Prideful. Think about that word and the realities associated with it. To be conceited, arrogant, self-righteous, high and mighty, 
narcissistic is a word we might use, snobbish, presumptuous sometimes, certainly hard-hearted. Uh, strangely enough, in our modern culture, we actually tend to minimize the sin of pride and, and we'll make statements like, he's a good guy, he's just a little prideful. But the Bible does not speak to us about the issue of pride in that way. Rather, the Bible reminds us in 1 Samuel that God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart of men and women. And we are told that the heart of pride originates in the heart of Satan. In the book of Isaiah, one of the major prophets, Isaiah 14, 14, listen to these words describing the heartbeat of Satan and to a lesser degree to us as wicked people. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See, pride for you and I is making much of me rather than making much of Jesus. It is the mentality that says in big ways and in small ways, I can do life without God. I don't need his ideas, his rules, his plan for my life. I don't need his word, um, much less I don't need Jesus. It is the reality of thinking I can do life uh, on my own. I can handle it myself. And whether the issue for you be the challenge set before you be raising kids, making money, making a decision about education, a dating relationship, marriage, all of it begins by submitting our way to God's perfect way, to God's perfect word and his perfect plan. Proverbs 14, 12 in the Old Testament has always been one of those verses that really jumps out at me. It is a humbling and ought to bring some, some healthy, godly fear into our hearts. The Bible says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a warning there when we begin to think that I know the way better. Pride is saying my way is better than God's way. The Titanic was remembered as the unsinkable ship, or it was declared to be the unsinkable ship, as you recall, in 1912. It was to be a monument to human achievement, but it is to this day a grave marker of human pride and arrogance. The boat was equipped with less than half of the lifeboats necessary to save everyone on board because the ship is unsinkable and because, well, lifeboats would be an eyesore to those riding on the ship. The captain himself sailed at a higher speed than was necessary, presumably because he wanted to break the speed record and gain fame and notoriety for himself in crossing the icy waters of the North Atlantic. The radio operator on duty that fateful night dismissed at least six iceberg warnings from other ships in the immediate area that were saying, slow down, even stop, because there are icebergs in the water. But he deemed those messages inferior, unnecessary, and did not bother to open them. One survivor by the name of Sylvia Caldwell uh, heard a deckhand declare, God himself cannot sink this ship. What were the results of pride? More than 1,500 people perished in the water that night. Only 700 and survive, 705 people survived. In their pride, in, in this story of Obadiah, Edom says essentially, we're invincible. We're unsinkable. They say that in, in verse 3. And the Bible says the reason that they thought that was because they lived in the clefts of 
the rock. See, Edom lived in what were red sandstone cliffs about 5,000 feet above sea level in a place that is known today as the lost city of Petra, made famous by Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, among others. If you have not seen that movie yet, I weep for you. Please watch it. Uh, The interesting thing about Petra is that you can only enter the city through this narrow canyon that is over a mile long and only 15 feet wide. And so the saying was that a dozen men could defend Petra, could defend Edom from an entire army's invasion. We're invincible was their mindset. Regardless of what we do, we don't need God. We don't need God's ways. In a very real way, their mentality, and sometimes ours can be, I am God. I am invincible. I am in charge. It goes on to say that, uh, actually, let's look here at verse 7 and 8 of Obadiah. The Bible says this, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? See, in their pride, not only did Edom say we're invincible, Edom said we've got, we've got powerful friends. But God says that your allies have already deceived you. Take that to today. Believer, sin, Satan, sinful things, even sinful friends will promise you that they are there for you, that they are on your side, that they will deliver what they promise, but they will not. If you have allied yourself with anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, it will not deliver what it has promised. Maybe it is the the temptations or the, the idea that a friend, you can find a friend in food or alcohol or pornography, or, or, or gambling, or money, or we could ma- name many others, but your allies here, your coping mechanisms, as it were, will betray you. In their pride, Edom said, we're wise. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the Edomites historically were known for being a people of wisdom. In fact, in 1 Kings 4, describing Solomon's wisdom, who is remembered as the most wise person uh, ever to walk the earth, it said Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East. The men of the East meant Edom. But here, God says in verse 8, you have no wisdom. In fact, God says, I will bring you down. What a terrifying thought that the God of this universe says to a people, I will bring you down. God exalts individual people. God exalts whole nations. And when that person or that people begin to exalt themselves and say, look what I have done, God in his wisdom and sovereignty will put them in their place. Historians tell us that there have been 21 great civilizations And all 21 have indeed gone the way of the dinosaurs and are now gone. God's judgment and destruction of Edom is promised here because of their sin of pride. But God invites us into something different, doesn't he? He says instead of pridefulness, instead of being humiliated, God invites us to a heart of humility that says in the quietness of prayer, God, I need you. 
God, I need your wisdom. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I tried to do it my way and it didn't work. And I just want to admit to you that I can't do it and I I need you. Or maybe it's this one. God, thank you. Thank you for everything good that I have in my life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my job. Thank you for circumstances that looked bad on the outside, but you have brought them for good. Lord, you deserve all the praise. It's not me. It's not my accomplishments. It's your kindness on my life. So thank you, God, for what you're doing in my life. It's the prayer and it's the attitude that says, help me, Lord. Teach me. Restore me. Move me to repentance where I need to be led again in in your way of doing things. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The invitation here, brothers and sisters, is to join the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. Jesus who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. The Son of God who came to earth to die on a cross for your and my sake. But the Bible says in Philippians 2 that God exalted him and seated him on a throne high above every name that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he invites us in to a relationship with the king, the king of the upside down kingdom. Number two, God not only calls us out of pride, God calls us into Christ-like compassion and out of aloof, A-L-O-O-F, aloof indifference. We see this in verses 10 through 14 of the message of Obadiah. Here, verses 10 and 11 now. God says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, that's important, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. See, Edom is a direct descendant of Esau. And Esau is the older brother by a few moments of Jacob. Jacob, who was renamed Israel, the father of the nation of Israel. These are the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah from the book of Genesis. And God told them by prophetic word that the older would serve the younger, that Esau would serve Jacob. We know that Jacob, uh, as, a, as a young adult, conned Esau out of his birthright. And when Esau discovered this, he chased down Jacob and Jacob had to flee the nation in order to not be killed by his brother Esau. Edom, a descendant of Esau, has a continued then long history of bitter rivalry, Edom and Israel, Esau and Jacob. Uh, Edom would refuse to let Moses and the Israelites pass by them safely when they were on their exodus wanderings to the promised land that God had promised them. Later on, King David of Israel will conquer Edom, at least for a time, in 2 Samuel And here now in the book of Obadiah, we're told that brother Edom stood aloof in verse 11. 
That is that as some foreign enemy invaded, attacked, and destroyed Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, that Edom did nothing. To be aloof is to be indifferent. So I think about family relationships and many families or maybe with friends that we have, people that we see struggling to be withdrawn, distant, detached, unconcerned. Maybe you've been around, you've suffered under someone who is apathetic, cold, passive, unsympathetic. How do we treat our brothers Literally, spiritually, in every sense. The Bible goes on in verse 12 to say that Edom gloated and rejoiced in Judah's ruin. Instead of mourning with those who are mourning and grieving with those who are grieving as brothers, Edom instead sided with the enemies of God's people. I think for us as believers, there is an insidious pride that can well up within us, a lack of compassion that sometimes we can even be happy when we see someone else sin that we can be happy when we see someone else fail. There's sort of this sneaky, uh, twisted sense of justice that makes us feel better really about ourselves because it's all about me anyway, that when I see them crumble, it, it elevates me or I want it to elevate me. Have you seen that in your own heart, the way that Edom saw it in, in their heart? In verse 13 and 14, the Bible tells us that Edom actually stole their brother's things, and that there were, in fact, a few Israelites that actually escaped whoever this foreign enemy was. And the Edom went so far as to capture Israelites who had actually escaped, gather them up, and bring them back to that foreign enemy that they might suffer further. We don't know for sure, more than likely, the historical moment here is the destruction of Judah by the Babylonians, again in 587 BC. We have those moments in Ezekiel 35 and in 2 Kings 25. It could also be the much earlier sack of Jerusalem by the Philistines and the Arabs in 850 BC that we see take place in 2 Chronicles 21. In either case, The question that we should ask of them and of ourselves is how could Edom do something like this? And what is the connection between pride and a lack of compassion or indifference? And where does that take place in our own hearts? See, pride is this ungodly sense of superiority. And it's an unjustified sense of I'm better than you that leads us to eventually lose compassion. And we get to the place where we actually look down on others and we even move to the place where we mistreat others. Returning to the Titanic for just a moment, how does it make you feel to know that there were almost 400 empty seats in the lifeboats that pulled away? Only one lifeboat that still had space went back to look for those who were screaming and drowning in the water. How does it make you feel to know that more than 50% of the first-class passengers survived, but only 25% of the third-class passengers survived, and only 20% of the crew survived? When you see suffering, what do you do? Do you like most of us tend to do in our, in our sinful hearts, do you push away or do you move towards suffering? 
When you see a brother or sister stumbling in sin, do you push away or do you draw near to them? When you see a difficult situation, maybe literally down the road, do you steer clear as one of Jesus' parables teaches or or do you draw near and step into suffering, step into difficult people, step into a high maintenance person or situation? As we consider that question, we ought to consider a much deeper question, which is what did Jesus do for you and me? What did Jesus do when he saw our sin? What did Jesus do when he saw our suffering? What did Jesus do knowing that on our own that we are hopeless? In Luke chapter 7, we have an amazing snapshot of Jesus. We looked at this in youth group a few weeks ago. Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. There's a crowd perhaps of about 2,000 people gathered around him, excited to see him and hear from him. The crowds are pressing in around him, and he comes upon a funeral procession. And it's a funeral procession for a man who has died, leaving behind only his mother, and his mother is already a widow. And so this this widow, the widow of Nain, the story is called, is now left completely on her own. And in that culture, in that day and age, this would have surely been a death sentence for her to have no one to care, protect, and provide for her. Here's what we know about Jewish people as well. They uh, step away from death. They certainly didn't touch death. They didn't go near it. And with the crowds surrounding Jesus and lifting high his name, at least for the moment, it would have been easier and it would have been more comfortable for Jesus to just keep on walking and make the story about him. But Jesus doesn't do that. The Bible says very clearly that, first of all, that Jesus saw her. Do you see those who are hurting, who are suffering, who are struggling, who are carrying a heavy burden, whether they put the burden there or someone else put it there? Jesus saw her, and the Bible says in the very next phrase that Jesus had compassion on her, that his heart was moved towards her, that he began to feel her pain in his own heart, and then Jesus moved toward her. He moved toward her weeping. He moved toward an awkward situation. He moved toward a woman who would have been overlooked. He moved toward an impoverished widow, and he helped He helped in a way that that I can't, but Jesus can. But there are so many ways that you and I can help because Jesus put his hands on death and Jesus raised that man back to life. And he didn't make it about himself. If if you had the power to do that and you had 2,000 people around you, what would you do? Jesus didn't make it about himself. Jesus looked immediately at the widow and said, woman, here is your son didn't even make it about the son, made it about her and restoring life and hope to her. This is Jesus who himself was an only son of the father who knew that his day was coming soon when he would die for the sins of his people. Sins that they deserved to die for, but he was going for them. God made it about you. Oh God, make us that way. 
God, move in our hearts, that, that you would move out of us whatever indifference or apathy that is in our hearts, and God, that you would grip our hearts, that we would have compassion not to move away in the day-to-day life, but to move towards those who are hurting, those who are sick, those who are overlooked or untouchable for whatever reason in today's day and age, and to bring to them the love of Jesus Christ. Believer, follower of Jesus, in what ways, even this week, to whom can you begin to move towards people in Christ-like compassion, knowing that Jesus has done for you what you could never do yourself? Third and finally, at the end of this passage in verses 15 through 21, God promises two things. He promises both judgment and compassion. Judgment and compassion. Listen to verses 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. What a terrifying phrase again. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. God says first here, judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And he says to Edom in particular, as you drank and and got drunk and celebrated Israel's demise, so now you will drink the cup of my righteous wrath. Historically, we know that Edom would lose its independence uh, around the 5th century BC. And from the time of the Muslim conquest until this very day, the land of Edom is unoccupied. It was brought to nothing by God, as he promised. But you see here a common theme among the minor prophets, that the day of the Lord is not just a moment for Edom, Obadiah makes it clear that the day of the Lord will be one day for all nations. In the New Testament, Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So this relatively minor and historical judgment that came on Edom is a warning to you and I and to the entire world that there is a holy and righteous judge who has the right to destroy sin once and for all and to punish sinners like me and you. Do not think that this is somehow simply an Old Testament issue. This is why Christ came. Look at The Bible in the New Testament here, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist who comes before Jesus. Matthew 3 verses 10 through 12. John the Baptist says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Even here, John the Baptist tells us, judgment for the chaff, compassion, a new home for the wheat. For all those, for all those who receive Jesus, 
as their personal Lord and Savior. By faith alone, not by living a good life, not by your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds, but by receiving Jesus by faith as your Lord and Savior. The judgment day that you are due one day in the future has already been applied to Jesus one day in the past. There is a day that Jesus hung on a cross. And if you put your faith in Jesus, then your day of judgment has already taken place. He has already received the punishment that you deserve. So that that day of days, that the day of the Lord holds no fear anymore for those who are in Christ. It will in fact be a day of rejoicing for you because suffering has come to an end. See, the cross of Jesus is indeed the supreme display of God's wrath. And it is simultaneously the supreme display of God's mercy. John 19, 30. Just before Jesus gives up his spirit and dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. Your guilt your condemnation, your shame, your eternal destiny in hell that we deserve, it is finished for all those who are in Christ. Sir, what must I do to be saved? Be a better person, live a better life, take out some some social activities. No, trust in the Lord Jesus and his completed work on the cross. None of us can save ourselves and anyone can be saved by Jesus. There's hope. Verse 17 and 18 of Obadiah. Hope. It says, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be, a, be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. God promises here in the Old Testament real deliverance. The promise here of Obadiah to Israel is fulfilled in God's New Testament believers today. A day of deliverance from earthly enemies and earthly injustices, but so much more, even better, a day of eternal deliverance from sin's power over us. God promises real holiness. Again, no human effort can achieve real holiness. But when you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, he gives you a double gift justification that Jesus has made you holy by giving you the gift of his perfect righteous record and sanctification that Jesus is every day making you more and more holy by the gift of his Holy Spirit now within you, making you more and more into the image of Jesus day by day. God here promises a real possession. Verse 20 and 21 of Obadiah, finishing out the book The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Israel will possess the land and the exiles will finally come home. It says that Mount Esau will one day be governed by a much greater Mount Zion. Believer in Christ, you are promised the eternal possession 
of heaven, a very real place and a very real home with God the Father. And even better than heaven, you are promised the eternal possession of Jesus Christ himself, your Savior, your friend, your brother. And for the here and now, God still promises, even in the suffering, even in the brokenness, that he will supply every need according to his riches in glory. Do you find within your soul this morning that you are hungry and in need? Jesus will supply the here and the now and the eternal. God promises a real kingdom. That's hope for people who are victims right now in this world, victims of various types of injustice in our broken world. Does it not seem like the psalmist says that that the wicked man seems to have a much more comfortable life right now than, than those who are serving the Lord? Do you not find that frustration in this life? God says here that God's people one day will reign with him in the consummation of his kingdom, that the prideful will be humbled and that the humbled and humiliated will be exalted. So how will you respond? What do you do with God's promise of judgment or compassion? Book of Mark, chapter one, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Last week, I, I encouraged you, and I will say it again, stop pushing off spiritual matters. Stop ex- ignoring a spiritual and eternal question. Stop ignoring the reality of what is going to happen to me when I die someday. Do not push off that question another day. Because here's what I know. In the Titanic, do you know that many of those 400 seats that were empty. It was because people refused to leave the boat because they did not believe the Titanic could sink. Are you putting your hope in this world? Do you think that somehow that the the boat of this life is not one day going to sink? People drowned in the cold waters of the Atlantic who could have been saved. The Bible says, lay down your pride. Lay down your so-called wisdom. Lay down the addictions, the sins that we use to, to comfort ourselves, that we count as friends. Confess your indifference. Turn from those things and hand it over to the one who is despised and rejected by men. The one who turned power and pride on its head by making himself nothing so that you could have everything. I want to close with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a profound chapter, but it says this, New Testament words to us. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast 
in the Lord. Jesus took on the cross all of the judgment, justice, and wrath of a holy God that you and I deserve. And Jesus on the cross made a way that your sins can be exchanged for his perfect record and his perfect life. That you can know for certain this very day that you can spend eternity with God in a very real place called heaven. That your brother Jesus will come alongside of you even now in this moment. That he will send his Holy Spirit to dwell within your heart. That we would no longer boast in ourselves. That we would no longer be cold or indifferent towards the sufferings of others. But rather that we would lift high the name of Jesus. Because the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let's pray together.